When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Lit Up. On today's podcast, I have R.O. Kwan to talk about her debut novel, The Incendiaries. It's a powerful and dark novel about violence, love, faith, and loss. It centers around a young American Korean woman, Phoebe Lin. She's at an elite American university and is drawn into acts of domestic violence by a cult tied to North Korea. I wish you could have seen Aro as I could sitting across from me. She wears incredible eyeliner, kind of as a um, a barrier or a disguise to the world, but it, she looks absolutely fabulous. So you must go to the website and look at her picture so you can imagine who this kind of intelligent, fabulous woman is speaking. Today, I'm so lucky to have Aro Kwan here, and we're in New York, and it's a drizzly, grizzly day, and she's just told me that she loves that. Do you, and why? I do. I love gray weather. I love um, I love rain. Uh, you know, everyone thinks that San Francisco is foggy and gray, but um, where I live, which is it's actually, we get like the most sunlight in all of San Francisco and everyone else is so happy about that. And I'm always just like sunlight. <laughs> well, I also heard that you have blackout blinds so you can just block out. Is that to write, to write well, you kind of block things out or to read well? Yes, both. Um, I find it to be, I find, I just find the world to be so distracting. Um, and to, so the extent I don't have anything up on my walls, for instance, um, I used to, and then I realized I preferred to just have nothing really to look at so that, so that I could be more fully in my head. So we're here to talk about your first novel, The Incendiaries. Now, would you say that, um, it did take 10 years to write and, I'm wondering if over that process, like, did you get rid of stimulus as it became, the book became more and more real? How was the writing process? Oh, that's such an interesting way of putting it. Um, let's see. You know, I, I did. Um, increasingly, I didn't start this way, but increasingly I took more and more measures to try to give as much of my attention as I could to this book. Um, and so I did things like, I would not, to the extent I could, um, when the rest of my life would allow it, I wouldn't go on the internet until late at night. Um, I didn't have a smartphone. I've been borrowing one while I've been on tour, but my main phone is still a flip phone. 
I, uh, <laughs> I, um, I once I read that Obama only has three suits because he, in part, because he wanted to not have to not to have to think about that. I realized that that was, I mean, it just like struck such a chord with me, and so I stopped buying clothes that aren't black a few years ago, so that when I'm thinking about like, well, what am I going to wear today? Then the question, then the answer is always, I'm going to wear a black dress, unless it's if it's really cold, then I can wear black jeans. But, but <laughs> I love that. So you take out anything that isn't a writing related decision. Or yes. as many as you can in your life. Exactly. Um, I have sort of three lunches that I rotate between if I'm eating at home. Um, what are they? They're, <laughs> they're very, I sort of, um, I, I mean, I love food. Food is eating. I, I love food. I love thinking about food. And so I'm just trying to cut out that distraction as well. And so I have one that's sort of like an avocado based lunch and one that's more of an egg-based lunch. Um, <laughs> I was trying to keep things nutritious um, and reasonably tasty, but simple, simple doubts. That's the other thing. They take about two minutes to prepare. So let's go towards the book. And there are these three main characters. For whatever reason, I know Will is potentially the lead character, but for me, maybe because I'm a woman, you know, I, I identified with Phoebe the most. Who did you start with? Um, that's a great question. And you know, a lot of people have have felt that Phoebe is the protagonist or, or that Phoebe is the central figure. Um, so for the first two years, the book was actually told entirely from Phoebe's point of view. I imagine that the book will continue that way. Um, and then after that, at some point, I realized that, well, Phoebe um, goes through so much, you know, she loses so much and she believes that she gains a great deal. I was thinking a lot about books in which the narrator or a central narrator is not someone at the center of the action. Um, and I found that once I started letting Will, who loves Phoebe but isn't as intricately involved in, 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 in the cult, um, once he started doing a lot more of the narrating, I found that it just opened up a lot of space. It let an air into the book. It does feel that. I, I get that sense from it because Will is trying to piece together when this woman he loved like kind of the degrees to which she became more and more involved. And, you know, when we look back and try to piece together why a relationship failed or trying to make sense of things, it's often only in hindsight that you get these clues. Um, you mentioned that there is a cult. So let's allow people to kind of understand that a bit more. And when did you learn about these types of um Christian cults that are definitely kind of linked to Korea? Um, so it was less that I, let's see, it was less that I learned about Christian cults that are linked to Korea. And it was more that I was reading a lot about cults and reading a lot about extremist groups. Um, and then at a certain point, I tried to forget everything I'd read. And I wanted, because I wanted this cult um, to arise out of the book, and I wanted it to arise out of the characters and the, and John Leal, um, the cult leaders, out of his own obsessions, and so I wanted the cult to be as fictional as it could, um, and therefore as organic to the book as it could be. That said, a lot of people, um, so at this point, twenty different people maybe have have approached me with 20 different questions and they've all said varieties of, um, you know, your cult intensely reminds me of X cult or your cults, like everything they're doing, it sounds exactly like Y cult, um, is 
it was, it, I mean, surely it was based on this cult. And every time I've had to say, no, um, I really wasn't directly basing it on any, on any actual cult. Um, and I think this maybe it points to just how much a lot of cults have in common. Mm. With this charismatic leader. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what was the impulse to even start reading about e- extremist groups and the kind of uh, structure of a cult or how they begin? Like I'm imagining this was many, many years ago if the mm-hmm. book took you so long. Yeah, um, let's see. So for those first two years when when the book was told entirely from Phoebe's point of view... Um, it was, at least at the time, more or less about um, a young woman sort of wandering around, mostly by herself, just like physically walking around, meditating on the nature of an absent God, um, which was just about as fun to read, um, as, I think, <laughs> as, as that sounds. And, and I really love meditative walking around alone books. You know, um, I love Zabald so much. I'll, I'll reread Zabald until I die, I imagine. Um, but I don't think that's what this book at least wanted to be. And I found that once I started externalizing some of my own obsessions with faith, um, and with sort of the extremes of faith, that the book really—that's when the book really started coming to life. And so I think that's when the—that's when the cult started forming out of out of that. A cult started forming out of that. An extremist group started forming um, out of that. And I can't quite trace exactly exactly when, like exactly the moment when I thought, okay, yes, there's going to be a cult. But well, it's so interesting because two faiths almost come up against one another, although there are two strains of Christianity. So one, Will, the character we've spoken about, grew up in a very, um, well, he was a deeply religious young man and lost his faith. And then Phoebe is kind of finding her faith at college. I'm wondering, why did you want to explore these, almost someone who's lost faith versus someone who's finding faith? For the first two years, um, there was just one character who lost and then regained their faith, um, and that was Phoebe. And then, and once again, I found that once I split that into two people, Will was always there, but he played a much more minor role um, at first. And once I split that again, I've, I, the novel started coming to life rather than having everything take place within within one character. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it's it's so funny talking about all the changes this book has gone through because I I think in a lot of ways I've forgotten a lot of a lot of what happened. Like I have no idea um, exactly how many drafts this went this book went through, for instance. And I think in some ways I've shed I've shed knowledge of what happened. I think in part because I'm well, I'm two years into my next book, and I think I just don't want to know what this next book is going to take and how many drafts I'm going to have to go through with that. Well, also the creative process is quite ephemeral and mystical and then when you have a book that does well people like me are asking you to dissect it and really you want to say just let it speak for itself (laughs) no no I um I, I completely understand the I mean I mean I with any book I love, I, I get a little stalkery and I look up all their interviews and I, and I, and I want to know everything they have to say about it. Um, I think it's, in some ways I've been re- realized, well, I, I know other writers have said this, um, but I've been realizing it for myself too. I truly do believe that every book is 
like I, I like that book is like I've made fifty percent of the book, um, and I think every reader remakes the book, and every reader is is bringing fifty percent of the book with their own lives, their own understanding of what the book is. Um, people have said so many different things about even let's let's say even how people interpret the ending, um, and there are people who sometimes just like corner me and they're like. So what's the truth? Like, what's what's the reality here? And I'm just like, I, I gave you like in this book, I've given what I what I know. Um, I have my own thoughts, but in a way, I feel as though my own separate thoughts. I'm coming to it as a reader of the book myself. One thing that Will says that really struck me was that he had a God shaped hole mm. in his life mm-hmm. because I've just been thinking a lot about wishing to have a framework to live by mm. that that is what religion gives us or or a, another type of belief system and wondering what it's like to have believed something so fully and then to have lost that thing. Can you talk about what that journey is for him and also kind of what that journey was like for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so those are in a lot of ways the parts in which Will talks about having lost his faith, um, in a lot of ways, those are the most directly autobiographical parts of the book. Um, not in terms of like every sort of small fact about his life and how he, um, and how he went about losing his faith, but emotionally in terms of how much it meant to me and how painful it was. And for Will and for me, um, it, it was such a, joy to believe it was it was really wonderful um I tried so hard not to not to lose my faith I tried not to leave not to leave Christianity um and at some point it just became impossible to to keep believing as is also as is true for Will um and then once that and then once that happens it's I I don't know it's um it's funny because my family is still so deeply religious um, and they, my mother essentially believes that my apostasy is, um, is some sort of lasting juvenile rebellion, but one that'll surely end sometime really soon, probably tomorrow. <laughs> every day. Yeah, she every thinks. day, every day. She's pretty sure it'll end tomorrow. Even now, if she, um, I mean, she, she's wonderful. She listens, we're very close. She reads all my interviews. She listens to all my interviews. She, she reads every essay I write. If, if there's any mention of having lost my faith, she'll add some sort of PS, like your mother's praying for you. <laughs> and said something on the lines of God's waiting for you, you know? Um, and so... Yeah, it was it was incredibly painful. Um, it was wonderful to believe. And with this book, I think part of at least one of the big initial sparks for the book was my desire to try to convey the depths and the heights of what it was to lose that faith and what it was to believe. What was it like when you had inklings that your faith was leaving and then... Was there a point where you had to tell your family that? Mm. Um, that's such a, let's see. That's a lovely question. Um, I remember when I started feeling as though I was going to lose my faith, um, started suspecting that, some, that not all was well. It really did feel as though an abyss had opened up before me and I was trying not to walk toward it. I was trying not to even look at it. Um, but the abyss just kept getting bigger and bigger. And then at some point, 
there were just so many questions. There were so many questions that I couldn't answer. And there were so many ways in which believing in this one faith, this one set of this one set of beliefs about how the world runs and how and how people are and who gets to go to heaven and who doesn't. Um, it just became impossible for me to continue to subscribe to it. Um, and as for telling my family, I think it's a little hard to remember, but I think along the way I was I was talking to my parents about it because I could, it was it was so strange to see that my fa- that because not only my family but almost all of my friends were also deeply religious, and it was so strange to see that nobody else was having these problems, as far as I could tell. Um, and when I talked to them about it, they they didn't quite understand what I was saying, or they'd hear it, but it it didn't it never bothered their own faith. Um, and so, yeah, it was it was it wasn't so much that it was difficult to talk to them about it. It was more that it felt so very lonely because nobody else was where I was. Ooh, yeah, I just imagine. Did reading help you feel less lonely, I guess, during that period? Um, in general, reading did help me feel less lonely. When it had to do with questions about my faith, it didn't in that and since then I've come across more books that grapple with like I mean I love Graham Greene I love Jeanette Winterson um people who grapple deeply with questions Marilyn Robinson of course questioned grapple deeply with questions of faith um but at the time I didn't I wasn't coming across books that that address these questions and so I think it made me feel even lonelier because I was used to finding I was used to finding fellowship of a certain kind here and there in books. Um, and I and I didn't, not at the time. Well, and especially too, if your fellowship is gathering around the Bible, mm. like you do have a book, mm. but it's that one book mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. you keep mining that one text over and over for guidance. I've just been thinking about that. Like if you have such a strong Christian faith, and you read other books that present all these other ways of living, how does it not make you question your faith? I'm not sure. It's not really a question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I think, and I do think in some ways, um, the extent to which, I mean, I was, I always love to read. Um, and I do think that it's possible that the extent to which I love to read which of course means that I love to inhabit other people's minds. Um, I think that did eventually, at least partially, lead to my loss of faith because it's hard to inhabit so many other people's minds, to imagine so many, so many other people, to increasingly fully understand that other people are just as alive in their heads as I am in mine. And at the same time, to be able to believe that everyone who doesn't believe exactly as I do, more or less, is, is, isn't is going to go to heaven um, and is possibly condemned to hellfire. It's <laughs> <laughs> like a silent, we're like, oh, <laughs> hell. <laughs> so Phoebe is also, was a, pian- a pianist and a prodigy in a way, but she has this moment, I hope it's not giving too much away, of, you know, b- having such talent and yet realizing that she's not talented enough for herself to keep going. What, why did you want to explore that in the book and how do you think that influences her 
trying to find something else to hold on to or if the I don't know if they are related at all. It just felt like this, that's such a loss too, to give up this other thing. Yeah. Um, let's see. So Phoebe was and is a deeply ambitious person. Um, yeah, she gives, I mean, she's, she's very good at the piano. She could have made a life for herself in, in the piano. Um, and she gives it up in part because she, wants to be among the best. Um, there's a general sense I've come across that people who are very religious aren't also ambitious. Um, at least in my experience of the faith and with a lot of people I knew. Well, if you're very religious and you decide to give your life to God, you decide to become a, to make a life um, out of serving God, you're giving your life to the highest purpose there is as far as as far as you know um and so phoebe has all this ambition that get, that then gets that then doesn't, doesn't really have anywhere to go she goes to school um she's not really interested in study she doesn't know quite know what to do with herself and she runs into both will and john leal um, the cult leader they're they're very different people of course but neither in any way lacks for ambition um and i think that's part of what draws her to both of them that's true. I hadn't thought of that at all, this idea of ambition and being good at something or mastering something in a way that you become a, a good Christian um, or, a, I don't know, you know, the best painter or the best writer and how you could channel the same energy into either one of those things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't think I'm, I don't think my mother would disagree with me if I said that my mother, who's a deeply religious woman, um, pretty much insofar as it doesn't go entirely against Catholic doctrine, she does kind of believe that she has a very direct line to God um, and that she has a profound understanding of what God wants. Um, and I don't mean this in like a, like she's also, thank goodness, she's, she's not a 45 voter, you know, like she, she's not, um, she's not, it, this, her, her sense of religion is, 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 is relatively very expansive. Like she pretty much believes that anyone who is a good person gets to go to heaven. Um, so you don't even really have to be Christian, which I'm pretty sure, unless things have changed dr dramatically in the past couple of years while I haven't been paying attention, is not Catholic doctrine. <laughs> and, um, and there is, when I, again, I'm bringing it back to my own, to my own experience. I just, I, I, I really hesitate to generalize. Um, but in the youth groups I was involved in, in the churches I was involved in, there was a, the closer you were to God, the better you felt. Um, the more you had a sense of God, the better, the better you felt. And to feel less close to God could feel difficult. And so I think that that was one way in which ambition could play out. In some ways, I'm since I stopped being religious, I've become so allergic to certainty in its in all its permutations I think um I'm even allergic to my own allergy to certainty because that feels like a version of certainty that I'm suspicious of but I feel as though again I, I shouldn't generalize but but ardently believing in one and having one answer 
to the world, I think can be a very dangerous thing. Um, and it doesn't have to be even religious, you know, like it can be just any sort of overarching answer to the world and to how the world should be, I think can be very dangerous. And also thinking that if that belief imposed on other people would make them better mm-hmm. people too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And of course we're seeing this playing out every day in the news um, with, with all the, with each heartbreaking new development. Um, it was important to me that I not pretend, that the novel not pretend to have any sort of deep or definitive knowledge of, no- of North Korea. Um, I think especially, I think the responsibilities in writing about, for me at least, in this book, I felt that I didn't want to make any claims about any definitive claims about a country I've never visited that so very few people outside of North Korea get to ever see. Um, and I wanted the book to be on this. There's something Cortazar says that I love, that he's on the side of the questions. And the book is on the side of the, side of the questions in a lot of ways. Um, I think it's it certainly is in terms of how it depicts North Korea. How did you research this part of the book? Because I'm sure as a you second generation South Korean, mm-hmm. it's obviously something you want to try and depict as you know honestly as you can. Yeah, um, so there was a period when that was another sort of research um, stint I had of, of a few months when I was reading everything I could find, all the nonfiction I could find about North Korea. Um, but that wasn't for the book really. I was doing it I was doing so at the time because I just, Parts of my family um, come from what used, from what is now North Korea, what was at the time just Korea, Korea, um, and they and the parts of my family that 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 are that sort of directly lead to me um, are they all fled before the start of the Korean War. So I think I was reading about North Korea in part because I just was because I, I realized that that meant that I have distant family members in North Korea who I've never met, who've had very different lives than I've had. Um, and I think I wanted to fill that hole in knowledge and that, that kind of longing to the extent that I could. And the more I've read about North Korea, I, I think I realized that that wasn't possible. Um, there's so little that makes it out still. And there's so, and what information that does make it out is so incomplete. Um, and I think maybe that longing started to bleed into the book and John Leal started taking on this North Korean past. Well, and something really fascinating that happens, he gets taken into a gulag. I think we can say that. It doesn't ruin too much. And that what he notices that even the political prisoners in there with him still love their despotic leader, even though they're essentially in prison. That's such a it's like that sick dynamic kind of Stockholm syndrome. Was that something that you read about happening? Um, yes, that was definitely something I read about. Um, I should note that I think the book does leave, does it, well, I mean, as you said, the book does raise a lot of questions about whether or not John Leal ever, ever was in North Korea at all. Um, that was something I read about happening. Also, that's something I read about, over and over again, um, I read that in cults. Seeing a cult leader being proven wrong does not hurt 
a cult leader's followers' faith um, in their leader. If anything, it often strengthens it. Um, and so one sees this over and over again in doomsday cults, where they predict the end of the world, and they'll say, you know, the world is going to end six months from now, and it and it conti- and, the, and it doesn't. You know, the day comes and everyone's ready, and the and the date and the world doesn't end. Um, and the cult leader will say, well, you know, it was wrong for these reasons. These there were these mistakes. Um, it's definitely ending three months from now, and this will happen over and over again. And this doesn't, people tend not to fall away because of that. If anything, it's almost as though once you start believing, you're so invested. And I've read that it almost makes people believe more strongly. I wonder if that cycle of the kind of almost the physiology of believing and then the adrenaline and all of that is kind of addictive, like Mm. this cycle of Mm. wanting to believe and getting ready and then... It's kind of like being in a bad relationship you can't leave. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like the disappointment and then, I don't know, I can just imagine if some leader is saying the world's going to end and then it doesn't, but what what are your other options? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You're kind of in this loop. Yeah, I could... Which I don't want to be in, but I don't want to stay. You're like, what are we talking about here? <laughs> well, Anna, um, I guess I'm not sure this in- directly addresses what... Well, I think something a lot of people who've never um, fully experienced religion don't see or, or something that doesn't get conveyed a lot is how fun it can be to believe. Um, I loved being Christian. I loved youth group. I loved youth group rallies. You know, there's, um, at the heights or depths of when I believed, um, I would attend a lot of sort of these ecstatic Friday night rallies where people would sing and dance and fall to the floor and talk in tongues. And it was, I mean, on top of everything else, it was so fun. Um, and that, and that's, and that's part of the appeal too. Well, I'm just thinking of, I mean, not to bring everything back to Trump, but I'm yeah. imagining, you know, almost these rallies that mm. he takes part in that seem like this ec- ecstatic moment for the people there. And in the same way, he says all these revolting things and people don't seem to care. Yeah. And it's almost like he is this type of leader now. Mm. Mm. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, I, I just, I'm, I'm, I mean, I, as, I, as I'm sure you are, as I feel as though everyone is, these past two years, but maybe especially these past two weeks, have just felt so hard, I think. I feel as though it's, it's felt, these past few weeks have felt harder, I think, than anything else that's come in, the, in, these, in these two years. Um, I think there's something about, over and over again, I've heard friends say, I know I shouldn't have, but I was hoping. Um, or And I, I don't know why, but I was still hoping that there might be some last shred of decency or morality in, in, in some of these senators. Um, or respect. Humanity. I don't even know. And it's, it's heartbreaking what's, what's happened. I was, I was reading over some of my notes yesterday. I just have a giant file of notes for my next novel. Um, and I came across something Breck said that that we're, something about that that's that that he believes that humans can t- 
turn off their ability to feel compassion at will, that it's something that you can actively kill inside of yourself. And sometimes I wonder, yeah, I wonder, I, I just, I don't know. That's <laughs> happening. So if you are two years into the next novel, are you a writer that can talk about it or is it very, which I totally respect, mm. it's, you know, writers are very different. They're like, I, it's this precious thing that I don't talk about while I'm creating. Mm -hmm. What is the process like for you? Um, so I'm two years into it, which in theory sounds like a long time. And um, it's still so, it still does feel so raw. It still feels as though it's figuring out what it wants to be. Um, and this year I, I really haven't been able to give it the kind of attention I, I would, I was giving um, the incendiaries while I was working on it um, because of, there have been so many other things that I've, um, that I've been thinking about and doing, but uh, it's, it's centered on two artists, two women. Um, and that's pretty much all I can say yeah, for now. Absolutely. <laughs> Another great piece that you wrote that I loved, I can't remember where it was, but we'll link to it, was about discovering your eyeliner. Oh. <laughs> which, and, tell, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, that it was a part of it was about feeling like when you went into the world, you didn't want people to assume you were happy or, you know, having some kind of external signal about your inner life. Mm. Was that right? Yeah, it was part of, um, I think I generally, or I've been told that I think I generally do read as being quite happy. And, um, and I think I was, at the time when I started increasing how much eyeliner I wore at the time I was just in a, I was in a very low place. Um, and it became increasingly frustrating to engage with people and to, and to have them think, Oh, well, you know, you seem so cheerful. And it was just, well, no, that's, you know, that's just part of how I interact with the world. I think, um, and I think it does have a lot to do with being a woman and I don't know. I feel as though anytime I'm in, a if I'm, you know, if I'm at a dinner party, um, I feel so conscious of like, is everyone having a good time? Like who's, yes. who feels a little out of it? Who's uncomfortable? How do we fix this? And I feel very much that yeah, this how is, how do we fix things? Yes. And I feel as though it's, it's partially my responsibility, even if it's not my dinner party, even if I don't know these fucking people. <laughs> um, and I feel as though so many of my friends who are women do often feel this way. And so many of my friends who are men don't generally tend to feel this way. Um, and this, this idea of always putting everyone at ease, I think, um, I think I just wanted one tiny bit of just a, one small detail, just, just something to say, like, I'm not, I'm not quite as Pollyanna-ish as I might seem. <laughs> I think it's great and clever. <laughs> I was trying to think of what I could do <laughs> myself. <laughs> I was thinking about tattoos almost, like that's yeah. often why you know, you want some outward expression of mm. something that's going on inside of you, not necessarily, but sometimes. Yeah. Like symbols to the world or dressing mm -hmm, mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really, um, I keep trying to, I have no tattoos. I keep trying to get a tattoo or thinking about it, wondering what it would be, but um, 
in life, I regret not everything, but maybe 98% of my choices ended up, end up in, in regret, you know? Really? And I'm almost certain that if I ever got a tattoo, I would shortly thereafter regret it and need to take it off. And it, that would just be a really expensive procedure yeah. for no good reason. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs> That's interesting to regret. I'm wondering, was it, it was obviously a choice to set the book at a fictional kind of elite university. And I feel like class and race plays into this. It was interesting, I thought, to have Will be kind of the white character who was, um, you know, hiding the fact that he was poor, really. Um, Why did you make that choice necessarily? Um, Let's see. I'm not sure. So when I write, there's um, there's very little sort of top-down conscious decision-making that's happening, you know? It's more that I feel as though I work very gradually from one line to the next. Um, and over time, the sentences are telling me what they want to be. And over time, I'm learning who the characters are. I'm getting to know them. And I almost feel as though the characters in the book pre-exist me and it's my job to find my way toward, toward them almost because that doesn't sound very rational um, but it almost feels that way or at the very least maybe that makes maybe that helps me feel better because it because that means that there's an answer somewhere mm. out there um, but yeah in some ways so the characters feel as though they came to be for me rather than that I made big decisions about who they are and what their lives are like. And um, I maybe a way to answer this is, I think I would have found it impossible to write about an American, co- or to write a book that's set on an American college campus without writing about class as well. Yeah, I. it's so interesting. I was an exchange student at Cornell mm. And coming from Australia, where everyone goes to all the universities, bar a couple, are state universities. Mm -hmm. So there isn't this sense of, um, I don't know, hierarchy. I mean, yes, sure, some are better than others. But when I came to America, oh my gosh, I'd never seen people so divided by race, by Mm -hmm. class. Like with fraternities and sororities, I'd seen them on the movies, but I couldn't really imagine that that they were as um, kind of polarized as 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 they'd been depicted. Yeah. Um, so I fully and you know the book reads so authentically to me. Yeah. Um, it it was so it was shocking to me to see this play out so blatantly. Mm-hmm. Like I kind of thought, aren't we meant to pretend this? everyone is equal at least. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But when you're on a US college campus, no one's pretending. Mm-hmm. Although people are pretending inside. You know, I remember thinking, I don't have a Burberry, you know, what are those trench coats? You know, this was the early <laughs> 2000s. Or like, I don't have anything Tiffany. Yeah. yeah. How the hell do all these people have diamonds and mm-hmm, stuff? Mm-hmm. And pretend, you know, you kind of find the one thing you have that sing- signals mm-hmm. a certain class and you wear that out mm-hmm. to fit in. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. It was such a... Um, so I grew up in a town outside of LA um, where... Well, my high school was 80% Asian um, and 
the majority of that was mostly Korean. I'm Korean American. Um, and I just was not, I went to college and I was not prepared for how out of place I would feel at first, just how thoroughly out of my element. Um, and yeah, I, I just, I mean, I'd read about it a little in books, but I didn't know about this whole world of third, fourth generation students who'd, um, whose great grandparents had all gone to Yale. I didn't know about people whose last names match buildings at the school. Um, I didn't know about, you know, there was so much I didn't know. Um, and I think it is more, it's all the more shocking because in America we do pre- almost, it's almost as though everyone pretends that there is no class um, and that there, and I, I, do, I do think that, yeah, at least for me, and it sounds as though for you, that that sort of disparity between what we pretend. Like, and aren't what, we meant to keep pretending? Because <laughs> isn't that better than, I mean, I guess, I mean, this is maybe one of the big questions of the moment we're in. Yeah. Maybe everyone was pretending things were okay. Yeah. And yeah, now yeah. everyone's like, well, at least it's good. It's kind of the underbelly is showing, but I don't know. I feel like decorum does keep things together mm. or it makes people be polite and respectful to one another sometimes. Mm. I do infinitely prefer, and I think it's better for us in the long run, I hope, as long as, um, assuming there is a long run, um, that we're talking so openly about, I mean, relatively openly about, I mean, you know, I mean, there's a joke about people who say, I don't see, I don't see race, I don't see color. And it's just, no, that's just not true. We, we all see color and we all see race and let's, and let's talk about that. Um, and yeah, because I know, I mean, I don't think I knew anyone where I went to college. I think everyone would have said and believed that they weren't the least bit racist. Um, but at the same time, that is the place for four years, I've never been in such a... That, for four years, I was in the most race-divided place I've ever been, where you could just walk into the dining hall and yeah. you could see tables split by race. Um, yeah. A piece I loved, you wrote about how profound it was to see Crazy Rich Asians. Mm. Such a great film. And, you know, I am a white woman. I get to see people that look like me everywhere Mm -hmm. and could you just talk about how important that was yeah absolutely um so you know I went to go see I I knew I wanted to support the movie I knew I wanted to go on opening night um and I went with friends I pretty much figured it would be an enjoyable romantic comedy I thought I'd feel happy um but instead like Within a few minutes, I just started crying. And then I was trying not to cry. And I had on this eyeliner. I was hanging out <laughs> with friends afterward. I was like, look, I don't want to be a mess when I see my friends. And so I was trying to stop it. So I spent the entire movie just like struggling and trying not to cry and trying to dab my eyes in, in ways that wouldn't just, you know, make my face look like a paint splotch. Um, but, and I, I hadn't been at all prepared for how emotional it would be, how, how much it would mean to see... Asian characters who are speaking English, um, Asian American character, like having a central Asian American character just walking around being a human being, you know, like they weren't, 
they weren't ninjas. Like they weren't, there were no martial arts. Like there was no, there was no, there was no, people were just being fully human beings in, in the ways in which I, in a way that I'd never seen on a big screen. Um, and, and I know I've seen, people have commented, well, why, you know, you could always have seen this if you just watched, um, if you watched um, not movies that weren't like big studio Hollywood movies, if you watched foreign movies that are translated. And of course that's true. That's true. And I, I've, I've watched a lot of translated movies on the screen, but um, it's different when it's your, when it's your own country, when it's your own, when it's people who, yeah, it, it was, it was the first time in my life I'd ever seen that. I hadn't, I didn't realize how much that would mean. Um, and I'm so glad to see that. I mean, they've, they've approved, approved the sequel and it just sounds as though there's going to be more and more. Thank goodness. Well, and also the point is that we all love it too. Mm, it's mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. all these stories. I don't know. It's like, it's just so great that it's not like the one, per- you know, usually mm-hmm. there's, I think, you know, in like picture perfect, you like, there's like the one Asian girl and mm-hmm. she barely has any lines mm-hmm. or like, why can't we all enjoy just great stories about all different people from everywhere? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I pitch perfect. My goodness. I, I mentioned this briefly in the piece, but there's just like a running tally. A lot of my well, I know I'm not the only Asian American person who's been keeping a running tally of how just how often there's an Asian character in a movie or TV show who's essentially mute. Like we're just we're given no lines, you know. Um, and it's just you know I don't know any or there there I mean there Asian American people talk too is a thing that I think um, it seems to have just been discovered at least by big studio movies. Ugh. <laughs> okay, so I want to just a couple more questions. One <laughs> about, because I'm thinking I'll do this when I finally have a home, is turning around all your books. Mm. So the spines. <laughs> and I figured this was part of your, you know, cutting out the stimulus. Mm-hmm. Um, but can you tell us why you turned all your books around in your bookshelf so the spines faced inwards? And if you still are still doing that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I, it was just that I was writing in front of, I had my desk at that time. It's no longer like this, but I had my desk right in front of one of my bookshelves. And so that meant just like every time I looked up or was trying to think about something, all these titles would be staring back at me. Um, and they just got noisier and noisier. And you know, they're, they're book spines. They're designed to, to draw your eye. That's what, that's part of what they're trying to do. And it's like an iPhone trying yeah. to get your attention exactly course, exactly and all these books like I some of which I absolutely love some of which were interesting to me in other ways some of which, which I hadn't read yet they were just clamoring for attention it got so noisy um so I found that when I turned them around I still knew where they were I'd been staring at them so long but they just there was so much peace all of a sudden and then I just over the over the course of the next month or two, I ended up turning everything around, and I still could find all my books. Um, it just meant that they weren't yelling at me all the time. Um, and I think this is the most. I wrote a piece about this. It was published in LitHub, um, and there were. I I think I I got so many just sort of hostile tweets and people saying, uh, you know what kind of book lover does this? No one who loves books. And I was just like, you know, I, I, I truly love books. And I loved my books so much that I knew them. 
I knew them by their beige backsides, you know? And I was like, I really love my books. I don't think you could find your books by your beige backsides, you hater. Or I don't know, maybe they could. Maybe we should take that out. But <laughs> oh, isn't it interesting what gets to people? Yeah, no, people got um, people got a little upset. Um, and I don't have them that way anymore. But it's in part because we had to move out and then move back in. And then all that fuss, all the books, just like the order I had them in got completely screwed up. Um and I keep thinking about other ways to organize my books. I've thought about, I don't even know, dozens of different taxonomies, um, and none of it really feels satisfying. I think I'm just going to go back eventually to turning them back around. Um, and, yeah. Also, the colors look so would look nice and calm, the beige, <laughs> instead of all the bright, yeah. the bright and ones. Because at this point, anytime I look at my bookshelves, I just get distracted all over again, um, and I'm engaging with the books in a in a way that it just felt so private and wonderful when only I knew where they were um and it was fine because I mean I live with my husband and he as it is he doesn't know where the books are in the apartment and so he's always asking me like where's x book where's i y books I'm his librarian anyway um so it doesn't it 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 won't harm anyone (laughs) and then uh, the last question you've talked a lot about how much you love um, words and sentences or maybe mm. a couple more questions I heard that you've become increasingly obsessed with certain letters oh yeah and how is that screwing with your writing or how what what do those obsessions look like um I so what it, what's happened over time it started happening over the last few years I was working on the residencies and I, I figured it would be a passing craze and that eventually it would go away. Um, and it hasn't. The preference is that I just have, I have feelings toward e- individual letters of the alphabet. Um, some are positive, some are negative, some are very positive, some are quite negative. Um, which is <laughs> which is an example of ones you love and some you don't love. Um, this will sound so strange, but I, uh, um, I, I, I don't, I can't talk about it because okay, I worry that's okay. that I worry that they'll stop helping me. I think oh, that it's in good. very way in various ways it's hindering me, but no, it's also maybe helping me. Because you never know You like, never know what's helping. The letter gods <laughs> either. Yeah, exactly. You know, the gypsy the fairies. Exactly, exactly. It's just you know, it's all the ways in which like you don't really talk up it's dangerous to talk about what you love. It's dangerous to talk about what you love the most. Um so I I I'm, I'm, I, I don't feel I, I don't feel as though I can talk about it, but the preferences have been getting stronger. Um, and you know, a, a dear friend, he's a wonderful writer, um, is an Olympian, and um, that's the experimental French group. Um, Calvino was a part of it. Perak was a part of it, um, and it's it's still running. Um, my friend just moved to Paris to be. A, to, in part to be, to spend more time with Olipo. Um, and Perak, of course, wrote an entire book without using the letter E. Um, and he, uh, and then it's, I didn't know this, but um, in every language that's been translated, they've, they've thought of a different, a, a lot of different languages, because of course, like the letter E is, is so central to the English language. And so, you know, in Russian, I, they've like picked something else. In German, I think they picked something else. Um, and they retranslate it, but also like, but everyone just takes out a different letter, oh which I think goodness. is so fascinating. Um, so people have, so friends have said, you know, do you ever think about maybe just taking out some letters? And it's just, no, 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 it's not, I'm not, it, I think for me, it's not, 
something I don't want to take out any letters it's not anything like that it just feels almost as though this is the only way I can write it doesn't feel like an experiment it feels as though these are hidden rules for myself that I have to follow um as odd as that sounds increasingly I've been throwing to the winds my what used to be sort of like a lifelong project of trying to hide just how weird I am and can be. <laughs> I think I've given up more, more and more. <laughs> yeah, let it out. <laughs> I almost, I think the more specifically strange people are, the more lovable they are. <laughs> so you're doing well. Oh, thank you. Well. well, I think, oh my gosh. I mean, there's so many parts of the book we didn't talk about. Um, but I think for for people who haven't read it yet, we'll, we'll leave those kind of gaps and they can discover them for themselves. But thank you so, so much. Thank you so much. This was what so wonderful. Time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the podcast this week. How fabulous is RO? I can't believe how open she was about her own experiences growing up in a very religious household. And I really appreciate that. One lovely thing to add is that she left and, you know, I stayed in my workspace where we recorded from for a few hours. And as I was walking out, there was a package for me and it was some gorgeous, those fabulous Korean face masks that she had left as a gift. If you'd like to get in touch, please message me at Lit Up Show on Twitter and Instagram. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.